Welcome to It Just Makes Sense, a podcast by two easily distracted, higher educated former lovers that explores all of the unpopular opinions, conspiracy theories, and cult leaders that make you want to scream, It, it Just, just makes, makes Sense. I'm Sam Smith. I'm Jeff Seifert. And this week, hot off the press, we're featuring the new documentary on Netflix, Girl in the Picture. <gasps> I can't believe you haven't watched it or even like had an inkling of what it was. No idea. I haven't even seen an advertisement for it. Really? I heard anything about it. Okay. Know. Also, before we get started, I will have to say I was following this TikTok and it took me about this TikToker, took me about three of his TikToks to realize it was a joke. He kept posting about these movies on Netflix and I'm like, wow, that seems really interesting. I want to watch it. So I look at Netflix and I couldn't find it. So finally, I went to this comments and his thing and people were like, I'm not. I can't seem to find it. Is it on the West Coast, on the East Coast? And he goes, that must be it. And then it's like, is it on Hulu instead of Netflix? He's like, oops, maybe the wrong place. And then people were finally like, you're making these up. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, God damn it. They seem so good. All right. So the documentary on Netflix, because some people have written to me that they'd like to know where to watch these things. This is on Netflix. Girl in the picture. There's so many bomb drops through this whole thing. It's wild really so we start off in oklahoma city in april of 1990 there's two to three guys in a truck driving along the road when they see some debris they pull over to check it out and that's when they realize it's a body okay it's of a young blonde haired woman so they immediately call for an ambulance she's rushed to the hospital and the doctors are able to contact the woman's husband his name's clarence and he eventually shows up He says her name is Tanya Hughes and that she's a stripper in Tulsa and they have a young son named Michael. Now, the cops get like a weird feeling from Clarence right away, but they feel like because he is much older than her, but he's like, maybe he's just like an eccentric old man, like whatever. Sugar daddy. But the weird part is, is like he leaves the hospital and then we don't really hear much from him again. Hmm. That is weird. So the doctors continue to examine Tanya, and they notice there's old bruises and old injuries all over her body. They think there's something wrong with this picture. Unfortunately, Tanya passes away, and the girls Tanya had danced with wanted to find her family. So they start, like, kind of calling around and tracing, like, where she's from. And they find a woman that's connected to Tanya Hughes and they call her to tell her that her daughter had died again. Like, where's her husband? This whole thing's like kind of weird. That is strange. And the woman who answers the phone was like, I don't know what you're talking about. My daughter, Tanya Hughes died 20 years ago at 18 (gasps) months old. What? So they realized they had just buried the woman. They just married was not Tanya Hughes, but she had stolen identity. identity. So who the hell is the woman that they just buried? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So the police start interviewing some of the dancers from Tanya's club. What was the club called? Do you have the name? I forget. Oh. I have some of the names of them. There's going to be an assortment. I just enjoy the good pun of a strip club. (laughs) So I was just wondering if it was a good one or not. They said that Tanya was super smart, always reading, And they also said that they had met Clarence as well, her husband. He was an older man, and they did have a two-year-old son named Michael who had meant the world to Tanya. They said, or one of the dancers thought that there was two things that was kind of weird. One, Michael was always with Tanya and never wanted to really be with Clarence. Hmm. And two, 
Michael couldn't go anywhere with Tanya alone. They always had to be with Clarence. Like, for example, one time one of the dancers had asked Tanya if her and Michael wanted to go to the zoo with her and her daughter. And Tanya was like, no, no, no. Like, Michael can't go out alone. I have to have Clarence with me. Okay. So, like, that was weird. I mean, some people are like that, though. Couples are like that. I know people like that. This was a weird instance of why. Oh, oh you have a reason why? <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, okay. <laughs> they would. <laughs> They were just really close. Like, I, I know a couple that I'm friends with that. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I won't get it. I won't name them, but they usually don't do things without each other. No, this was more so like she could do things without Michael and Clarence, but Michael was not allowed to go anywhere Tanya alone. Oh. That's what I mean. Like, that's weird. Yeah, that is weird. Right? So they started to notice bruises in Tanya's body in the dressing room. Tanya would claim she would fall a lot or slip, but they knew different. But no one said anything, which is kind of weird. But I mean, I mean, at the same time, like, what are you going to do? And they said that it kept getting worse. Tanya told one of the dancers that Clarence had taken out life insurance on her. She was terrified and she wanted to run away from him. But Clarence kept her and especially Michael under lock and key. So he knew that if... Tanya was ever left alone with Michael, she would run. So that's why he always kept them together. Oh, God. She was stuck and she didn't know how to get out. It was a typical domestic violence story. Clarence called a dance or dancer in 1990 and told her that Tanya had been involved in a hit and run in Oklahoma City. But her friend was like, wait a minute. She never told me she was going out of town. She would have told me that. And She just didn't feel like anything was right about that story. So Tanya, the night of the accident, arrived in the hospital sometime after midnight and was rushed to the ICU. She couldn't have any visitors, but her friends wanted to go see her anyway. When one of her friends was in Tanya's room, that's when a nurse told her they felt like it was foul play and that it wasn't a hit and run. She had scratch marks on her as if she had been in a fight. And the doctor felt like even though... She was badly bruised and kind of beat up. She was in great shape for being hit by a car, like for being a pedestrian in an accident, um, right? Yeah. Like she was doing great for, for it to be a, to be hit with a car. It just seemed that she was doing well. But then at the same time, it's like they say she's doing well, but then she took a turn for the worst and she died because her organs started shutting down. She was 20 years old when she passed away. That's when her friends found out that her name wasn't her name. She wasn't Tanya Hughes, and they had no idea who she was up to that point. Also, like, what about Michael? He hated Clarence, and her dancer friends knew that. So her friends went to DHS and had them take Michael out of Clarence's care and into a foster home. Because when DHS went there, they realized how developmentally behind Michael was. Like, at two years old, he wasn't speaking any words. He was still using a bottle, and they would only put Pepsi in the bottle. What? Yeah, it was bizarre. That is so weird. So May 1st, 1990, he was sent to live with his foster family. He had just turned two years old. His foster parents said that if you ever told him no, he would go into hysterics to the point where he would slam his head against the floor, and they were worried about, like, his well-being. He was two and still on a bottle, like I said, with no solid food. So the first night, they took him off the bottle and gave him a cup of milk. It didn't go great, but after a week, he was starting to settle in and be fine. And they said within a month or two, he was like a different kid. 
They had Michael for four years. The first two years, he started to grow emotionally, physically, and mentally. Um, But the whole time that they had him, Clarence kept trying to get him back. He did have visiting rights, but his parents claimed that his foster parents claimed that Michael hated when he had to visit his dad. He would crawl under the piano bench and scream, that mean man, that mean man, over and over and over again. Hmm. But Clarence said that there had been no signs of abuse or neglect in the home, which is like, sir, he was still in a bottle at two years old. And he deserved to have the child back. But wait. Because at first I was kind of like, I mean, if it is his dad, does he deserve to have him back? I don't know. It's like. you, uh, what? Well, uh, okay, you didn't feed a child But I mean, milk? if it's four years later, if he's gone through, pro- like, I don't know the but whole circumstances. He? I don't think so. But wait a minute. There's a bomb drop. What? All of a sudden, the foster family just like casually mentions in this interview in the documentary. They say, we just assumed that Clarence was his father. Oh, what? what? They don't but know? But they were told to then get a paternity test. And turns out He's Clarence not. was not his body. <gasps> his father. What? So his legal rights were terminated in court. See and ya. And were stopped. But then the story gets fucking chaotic it already is chaotic nope no so now it's september 12th 1994 again the day after taliba's casually drop another bombshell happy 10th birthday taliba (laughs) the police receive a call that there's a man tied up in the woods with duct tape how did that happen let me tell you clarence had walked into michael's school with a gun and threatened the principal to release Michael into his care. Then he walked into Michael's classroom and kidnapped Michael and the principal. (laughs) They drove the principal's truck up to a dirt road, and he handcuffed the principal to a tree and duct taped him around his face and mouth. Could you imagine if you were that principal? No. I'd be so scared. And then eventually, like a couple hours later, someone stumbled upon him. How didn't anyone like... Stop him. No, not or from the school. Like, realize that the this was happening. Missing. Where did the principal go? I don't go? know if it's like the, I don't, I, from the way it seemed like Clarence showed the principal the gun, right? So then I think he hit it. He walked with the principal to, Clar- to the room and was like, oh, please, we're releasing Michael. Come with us. And then they just walked out of the school. Wow. But no one thought that was weird that the principal left and never came back. And why did the principal do that? Like why? He has a gun, Jeff. So you want to put the life of a kid in in, in danger? I don't feel bad for the principal at all. I mean, I he should have done thinking, something to stop yeah, that. Yeah, but I don't know if he's thinking, okay, the life of this small child or the lives of every child in the school if he goes on a shooting spree. Well, you could have got him in your office and kept him in your office. I don't know, man. I probably would have done the same thing. I don't think I would have. That's your male privilege, Joanne. The guy was a male. (laughs) Probably a white male at that. It was. (laughs) Thank you very much. So anyhow, back to the story at hand. (laughs) The police contacted the FBI immediately, and Agent Joe Fitzpatrick arrived at the scene. He was a special agent with a specialty in kidnapping. They put an all-points bulletin out to look for Michael, who was taken by Clarence Hughes. They pulled Clarence's file and noticed in 1990 they had tried to collect, or in 1990 he had tried to collect on Tanya's life insurance policy, but the social security number that he had given them to try to collect was listed to a Franklin Floyd. 
So, so he gave them more a ro- digging. They found that Clarence's Hughes's real name was Franklin Delano Floyd. Okay. Franklin Floyd had many an alias. Trenton David, Warren Marshall, and Clarence Hughes. He had been in a halfway house, which meant he was in prison prior. So they pulled his criminal record. He had abducted a, a four-year-old girl before. He had robbed a bank before, but he was released from a halfway house in 1972. But then in 1973, he had attacked and assaulted a woman. He was arrested, posted bail, and never appeared in court, and he had been on the run since for almost two decades. He was an expert at being on the run and concealing his identity, so this was going to be hard to find him. So now people started pointing fingers at Floyd and saying they think that he killed Tanya or whoever that woman was. Like, clearly. They haven't figured out who she is yet. No. So everyone is on the lookout for Floyd and Michael. It's all over the news, and it caught the eye of a family when they saw Tanya's photo. The woman watching the news turned towards her daughter and was like, wait a minute. They're saying that her name's Tanya, but that's Sharon. I'm telling you, that is Sharon on the news. So the family called the FBI and said, listen, that's not Tanya Hughes. That's Sharon Marshall. And remember, one of Floyd's identities was Warren Marshall. Um. So let's go back to 1984 to who Sharon Marshall was. She was in the gifted program in high school and graduated in 1986. She was beautiful, smart, in the ROTC. She was friends with the outcasts. She was not super popular, but she got along well with everyone. I took it that she was essentially me. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, that was me in high school. I mean, weren't you one of the outcasts? Praying praying around the flagpole. (laughs) I was also not an ROTC. I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but I can't imagine that that was quite the popular thing to do. I literally hate you. (laughs) (laughs) So Sharon Marshall's big dream in life was to go to Georgia Tech to become an aerospace engineer. As I'm fat and can't run the 10 minute mile (laughs) in band on the golf team. I was a real big winner too. I'll never forget that one time when I was at church camp and my friend was there for band camp at the same like location and I was like, wow, band camp, how cool. And he was like, aren't you here for church camp and i was like okay tim (laughs) 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 so any whoosies sharon went wanted to go to georgia tech to become an aerospace engineer and she got a full scholarship to georgia tech go yellow jackets isn't that crazy but then another bombshell is dropped i think they were yellow jackets a friend like i on this documentary, she's looking through the yearbook, and she shows that, like, ads – you know in your senior year when people can take out ads in the yearbook, like, if your family wanted to post, like, your baby photo with, like, a congratulations? Mm-hmm. So she's showing an ad that Sharon's father had taken out to congratulate Sharon on graduating and getting into Virginia Tech. The friend's like, you know, Virginia usually- or Georgia? Georgia Tech, sorry. Georgia okay. Tech. She's like, you know, So usually- they're two different mascots. Was it Virginia Tech? <laughs> <laughs> Let me give it the research department. It was one of the techs. Is Georgia hard to get into too? Well, they both are. They're both good schools. Let's run with Georgia. We're running with it. All right. <laughs> Anywho, her friend was like, you know, usually when people put baby photos in these graduation photos, like that's what they usually put in the ads. But her dad picked this photo of Sharon that was like really demure and kind of sexy. And she says, 
Why would this dad pick the sexy photo of her? It just doesn't make any sense. And now we're off. We're off the races to find out if Sharon had been abused by her father. Her friends just thought her dad was really strict and super weird. Like the first time he ever dropped Sharon off at a friend's house, the friend recalls that Sharon's dad pulled her dad aside and asked for a loan. And Sharon, like, isn't that weird? And her friend's dad was like, yeah, no, I don't even know you. I'm not giving you a loan. I spoke to the research team. It is Georgia Tech. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So Sharon told her friends that her mother was hit by a car on a bridge and died when she was in the second grade. So she was in charge of, like, cooking dinner every night. She had to be home when her dad was home. Um, And she couldn't really talk, like, on the phone with her friends. Her dad just seemed to be really strict. And then... Her friend drops another bombshell saying, I remember the night she called me bawling her eyes out because she was pregnant. <gasps> Sounds like a nightmare. We've on? all had it. And who was the father? No one ever mentions that. So Sharon said she's going to have a baby and put it up for adoption, but she can no longer go to college because her dad won't allow her to. She said someone had to stay home and take, ta- take care of daddy so I can't go to school. What's that face? Gross. Because of daddy? And that, like, he's not allowing her to go to college. Oh. Like, she worked so hard for that her entire life. Now she can't even go? I mean, it was the 80s. Did women really belong in college yet? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So then she called her friend and said they were leaving for a couple days to go to Arizona. She was going to have the baby out there and then put the baby up for adoption because daddy wouldn't let her keep it. People say daddy can't. So fast forward to um, 1994, they're still looking for Franklin Floyd and for Michael. Sharon's friend went to the FBI to talk to special agent Joe Fitzpatrick, and they showed her pictures of Tanya, and she said, listen, I'm telling you that is not Tanya, that is Sharon Marshall, and Franklin Floyd, or Clarence, as people knew him by then, that's not Tanya's husband, that's Warren Marshall, Sharon's father. Oh I'm dead. I'm dead. my god. I in my chair. I've passed out. What? And the police say, come again because they're married. We have the marriage certificate. And her friend was like, no, ma'am. That is her father. What? So who's the baby daddy? All this is unknown. So they realized after talking to Sharon's friend that Tanya- This is like some next level like Thank days you. of our lives shit Thank right you. here. That Tanya also had aliases. She had gone by Tony Tadlock, Tanya Hughes, and Linda Williams. They discovered that in 1989, one year before her death, they had changed their names and Sharon became Tanya Warren, or Tanya, Warren became Clarence, and the names that they used were taken off of tombstones in Alabama. Did you ever want to change your name when you were a kid? Like, why would they be Clarence? Like, if I wanted to change my name, I wanted it to be Morningstar Wimbledon. <laughs> okay, that sounds like a British porn star. I know, but, like, I love it. <laughs> Morningstar Wimbledon. In my head, it's, like, so classy. and like It po- definitely like, sounds poise. like British stripper. Did you just someone call me Morningstar? Like, what was wrong with me? But in my head, like, I, that was the name I wanted so badly. Where did it come from? I don't know. I may get it up, I think. <laughs> I always wanted my name to be Mark. I don't know why. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be named Mark. No, I didn't have like a name. So if I ever needed an alias, I would use Mark. I kind of like Sam. Mm. I like androgynous names. Mm. 
I do. Morning Star Wimbledon. Morning Star Wimbledon. I'm, I'm definitely going to start calling you. That. Don't I look like one? I could pull if anyone could pull it off, it'd be me. Morning. And then I'd be like, oh my god, me? <laughs> You're an idiot. Uh, so then they had gotten married under their new names in New Orleans. So he had married his own daughter. daughter. But what had happened to Sharon Marshall between high school and turning up dead? And her death was suspicious, but there was no real proof that Floyd had killed her. Like, you know what I mean? No, they just had her body. They didn't have any other right. proof. But what had happened to Cheryl Marshall? And, like, honestly, I need to know. You just said Shara Marshall? Sharon Marshall. I know, but I keep thinking about that movie, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, every time you say uh, Sharon Marshall. yeah, yeah. Also, this was so confusing because of all the different aliases. Mm -hmm. Like, some people referred to her as Tanya. Some people referred to her as Sharon because they all knew her as different names. And I'm like, get your lives together. So her friends after high school had only heard from Sharon a couple times. She kept saying that they were moving around a lot, and eventually she ended up in Tampa. Sharon became a stripper there, and one girl from the club at that time said that Sharon didn't really talk about herself too much, but eventually over time, they had started to become friends, and that's when other girls in the club started telling this dancer about Sharon and their dad's weird relationship. It was like Sharon's father was pimping her out to strip clubs and trying to get her into high-end parties. Now, these parties, like the higher-end parties at these clubs, according to the dancers, were for their higher-end um, clientele. And they were they were like dan- lap dances, but they weren't allowed to touch. And that's like a big thing pretty, at strip clubs. You know what I mean? It's pretty, pretty standard. Normal. They were really highly monitored, and most would leave with about 500 to to $1,000 after an hour or so. Perfect. But Sharon had gotten escorted out of these parties for trying to solicit sex with these men for $50. And she said that her father had told her to and even given her condoms. $50? So the dancers were like disgusted that her father would even try to do that to her daughter. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And then Sharon got pregnant again. And that's when she had Michael. Now, Michael's babysitter was interviewed for this movie. She said that he was like a very sweet little boy, and she had lived about one city block away from Sharon and Warren Marshall's trailer home. He didn't have a crib. He just had like a pack and play. But um, the babysitter remembers that Sharon had this friend, Cheryl, um, that would always come over to their house all the time. Like she would come over one to three times a week, and she said that she was absolutely stunning. Like she was gorgeous. And she was also, Cheryl was also a stripper at the same club as Sharon, but Cheryl was hoping to become a model and she really wanted to be a Playboy bunny. But like, who didn't want to, honestly? Seriously. So one night, the babysitter's over, and this babysitter's like 15 at the time, and she remembers that they were watching like a show on TV and it was just like her and Warren and the baby, which is like weird like why are you there but anyways they were watching wrestling and warren went to go put a tape in to record it on the vcr also lol because you know anyone under the age of 25 who's listening to this has no idea idea what what that means Mm -hmm. but back in the day we had to record from tv record from tv you would put a vcr or a video tape in to record in the vcr but when he puts the tape in and you'd be pissed if somebody turned the channel from channel three Because it ruined it. Or you'd be pissed if someone, like, didn't rewind the tape. All those things. 
But when he put the tape into the VCR player, it started playing a video of Sharon and Cheryl dancing topless on the beach. And the babysitter was like, wait, is that Sharon? Like, are you recording your own daughter dancing? And Warren, like, stopped it super – like, he realized what it was and, like, turned it off and screamed at the babysitter not to tell anyone what she saw. And this girl was only, like, 15. So she yeah. was like, okay, I, I got to go. Like, it's past my – Bye. Bye, my mom's yeah. calling type thing, you know? Yeah. So some of the strippers find out about the video and the girls confront Cheryl and it's like, what the hell are you thinking? And Cheryl said that Warren had told her to do the video and to dance with Sharon and that – he was going to send it to Playboy to make them stars. Wow, that's pretty dumb. Thank you. But then she said that Warren also tried to have sex with her, and she didn't want to have sex with him, and she was fighting him off, and something switched with him in, in him and became super violent. So the, I just found it weird because the other dancers were like, all right, you ha- we can't protect you from him, but you have to stay away from him. Um. And after that happened, all of a sudden, Sharon and her dad disappeared. She just didn't show up for work one day, and she never called in. So they figured that there was so much talk about what happened that Warren got spooked off. Sure. And they just took They'd off. They get discovered or yeah. whatever, yeah. So now we're flashing forward again to 1994. They're still looking for Floyd and Michael. Sharon's friends are being interviewed to find out more about Sharon's past. And one of her friends recall this story that made my fucking blood boil, I I didn't know what to do. I almost turned my TV off. Really? So the friend recalls that she went into a sleepover at Sharon's house once, and Sharon pulled out all of this, like, fancy and exotic lingerie from, like, her dresser. And her friend's like, like why do you have this? They were, like, 13, 14 years old at the time. Oh, Jesus. And she was like, oh, my dad just likes it, and it's really pretty. That's not even the weird part. This is not even the weird part. What do you mean part. that's not the weird part? Well, this isn't like the worst. I shouldn't say weird part. This is the most ho- horrific thing. Okay. So then Warren walks in with a gun <gasps> into the room. And he starts laughing like maniacally and said he would be back and just like walks out. And her friend's like, what the fuck is going on? And Sharon was like, oh, that's just daddy being silly. Like no big deal. Just ignore him. But then her dad comes back in with the gun. And he orders Sharon's friend to lay down and put a pillow over her head so she couldn't see anything. And she does. And then Warren rapes Sharon at gunpoint while her friend is in the room. What the fuck? And her, no one's report, her friend doesn't say anything. No one's reporting this. She said they didn't talk about it. He just got up and left. And the next morning, Sharon came over to her, gave her a hug and said, daddy's just like that. I'm okay. You're okay. And to just let it go. And she never said a word to anyone. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm not I'm not so surprised that she never said anything because she's young. I know, but I just feel like that's insane. Like, I feel like because I would be so traumatized, I feel like I would have to say something because it, I was like. I think eventually at some point you would say something, but I'm not sure you would have said something immediately. Yeah. Like, at 12 or 13, you pr- he had a gun. You're probably scared. Honestly, the main problem in this is men, if you haven't noticed. I mean, that's always the problem. White men. Get rid of them. Straight white men. Get rid of them. Straight white men. We don't need them. We don't need them. We don't need them. So now the FBI knows that Floyd had committed sexual crimes against Sharon, and they had assaulted and raped her in his past. So this was 
and that he had assaulted and raped in his past, so it was like a pattern from him. In 1962, he had abducted a four-year-old girl and had raped her when he was 19, and he was a convicted pedophile. In the 1990s, he had attacked another woman. So clearly, this man is a psychopath. Mm-hmm. So a neighbor steps forward who knew Franklin Floyd in the 1970s in Oklahoma City. And he said the neighbor had a picture of Floyd and Sharon when she was about five years old. So they started to look at the timeline. Sharon was 20 years old when she died in 1990, which means she would have been born around 1969 or 1970. Floyd was in prison from 1963 to 1972. So there was no way that he could have been Sharon's biological father. What the fuck? And he had a history of kidnapping. I can't. I mean, I kind of thought it from the beginning that he had kidnapped her. Yeah. They started talking about all the things that he had done. But did you think that it wasn't the father? He wasn't the father? Because didn't they say that that was the father? Because they thought it was. Oh, just based on their interactions on on what she told them. Right. Correct. Got it. She said, for all intents and purposes, this is my father. Right. And at the time, how old was he when she was kidnapped? Like you and I mean. Understood. Got it. So, I thought that people that saw him actually thought that, right. like, knew he was the father. But right. Wow. He had kidnapped Aaron, and he had kept her captive for over 15 years. That's insane. But, like, again, who is she if she's not Tanya Hughes or Sharon Marshall? Seriously, who is she? Who is she? And had her family been looking for her? For all that time? This is wild. So now, and also, where's Michael? No one keeps yeah, mentioning him. Yeah, where is him. the kid? Like, where is he? I can't. Like, could this man hold Michael captive for 15 years and abuse him? Like, I can't. This is wild. So Franklin Floyd had been a federal fugitive for 15 years. Like, how are they going to find him? So they come up with a plan. They look at what what he's done in the past because they always say, like, that's a pattern of what he's going to do in the future. Mm-hmm. People constantly repeat their patterns. So they figured he would go to use a past alias and go back to a state that he had been to before. Which, like, why are people such idiots? And go back, yeah. So they contacted all of those states and put out alerts for every single alias that he ever had in his past. Sure enough. They got him. He went to Louisville, Kentucky, and tried to reissue a license under one of his aliases. What an idiot. So And he ordered, like, the license to be delivered to to an address. So they were going to have a federal marshal dress up as a postal worker and deliver his driver's license to him. And then take him down. And it fucking works. Really? Surround him and get him into custody. Good. But where was Michael? He wasn't with him? So they immediately went to his residence and Michael is not there. And they talked to all of his neighbors. He had been in Louisville for about six weeks at this point. And, but no one really knew much about him. He didn't really talk to anyone. But they did say one thing. They had not seen a child ever in the premise. Really? And also, I find this weird. I guess it's not too weird. He'd only been there for six weeks, but six weeks, but he already had two jobs. So they checked in with his employers as well, and they had no idea about any boy, any son. No one had seen or heard about Michael. Hmm. So he had a bus ticket from Atlanta, Georgia, to Louisville, Kentucky, for one person and one person only. So when they questioned him about Michael, he claimed Michael was still alive, and they had left him with a rich person. Right. Okay, Franklin. Dead. But the police felt certain Michael was dead at this point, but they had nothing to go off of. 
Or I thought he probably sold him off into like a sex traffic. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if he was trying to sell, like, yeah, pimper out. Like, did he do that? Like, where is he? Sure. So he went to trial for Michael's murder, even though they didn't have a body. Wow. And they didn't really have much to go on. I was say, how could they? I mean. But they could charge him with kidnapping and carjacking. So they And they could charge him with using a firearm during the kidnapping. Because they had evidence of this. The principal could come for right. it, right? Oh, right. Yeah. So th- Right. Okay. So they can piece it together yeah. that way. Um, And Floyd represented himself. Ah. Because he knew that the judge would allow him to argue his case, and he wanted to get up and talk. Like I can't, I literally hate men. Like why? <laughs> like he just wanted his ego stroked, and he just wanted to tell his side of the story. Yeah. But the prosecutors did well, guilty on all counts. Good. He got fifty-two years in prison with no parole. No shit. But like, okay, okay, cool, 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 cool. But where's but Michael? Like, where's Michael? And who the fuck, Sharon Marshall? And what did you do with her? Like, did you kill her? What is happening? Do we get any of these answers? Then came another bombshell. Another one. Remember when the principals, like he took the principal's truck when he hide, when he took Michael, yeah. hijacked the principal's truck, whatever. Underneath the truck was taped photographs of obscene pornographic images. What? Some of which were of Sharon when she was small. On a young lady that they had never seen before. She was in various stages of being unrobed and beaten, and they figured he had killed her too. It was taped to the car? Yeah, to the bottom of the car. Why? Like, who is she? What is going on? (laughs) So they sent the photographs to different police offices around the country to see if anyone could identify the girl. And like FBI agencies, like, send this off. But then in March 19, 29th of 1995, a highway crew found a human skull, skull and a skeleton with breast implants and some jewelry. When they examined the skull, there was two bullet holes to the skull and the orbital bones were broken under one of the eyes. So it's clearly not a natural death. Right. Beaten shot. They looked, they contacted all the local agencies to see if they could identify the skeleton. But it wasn't until a year later that the FBI had the photos from another case of a young girl that was being beaten. And as they looked at them, the shirt that was around the neck of the girl that was beaten matched the shirt material they found on the skeleton. So they compared dental records, and Jane Doe was identified as Cheryl Camesso. Six years after she vanished, she worked as an exotic dancer, and she was the friend that was dancing with Sharon. Topless, yeah. After the videotape, there was a lot of gossip. Everyone was talking about it. And then Cheryl showed up at the club severely beaten. That's when they knew Warren went from being a twisted pervert to being physical. And he became obsessed with Cheryl. He constantly called the club looking for her, asking for her last name, asking where her dad lived. Like all of these weird things. Yeah. The other dancers tried to protect her from Warren. But shortly after Sharon's dad was in the parking lot and Cheryl went next to the car. They were arguing. He was screaming at her, and he said he was going to kill her. So another dancer ran over and intervened um, and got in the middle of it and, like, took Cheryl away from the car and went with Cheryl and, like, walked Cheryl to her car and then got in her car. That was the last time that anyone ever saw Cheryl. Hmm. So 
And then all of a sudden, Sharon had to get out of town and the babysitter had to collect their mail. Like as soon as that happened, they were gone. What was weird is one night, the babysitter remembers like a guy, people saw in the trailer park, a guy walk up to the trailer, walk in, walk out, and the next thing they knew, the entire trailer exploded. A bomb had gone off. The whole trailer was demolished. Jesus. So clearly they were fleeing the state because he had killed Cheryl, and he knew people would be looking for a man, his daughter, and a child. But they wouldn't be looking for a man, his wife, and a child. So that's when they stopped and got, got married. married. So Floyd was charged with first-degree murder of Cheryl. Good. And he faced lethal injection for this. Did he get it? He was already there for 52 years for kidnapping, but now they can get him for murder. He was found guilty and sentenced to death. Wow. All of this is kind of crazy to me because it's all really circumstantial. They don't have, like, any evidence that he did kill her. Like, you and I mean, they just have the body. Yeah. And the skeleton and nothing else to go off. Well, they didn't piece it back together because then they found two bullet wounds in the head. Right. But it... I don't know. They don't say it. They just were like, and he was found guilty. Like, you know what I mean? Right. But we still don't know where Michael's body is or where he is, and we still can't identify Sharon. So now it's 2002. So, like, years are going by. And he's still alive? Yeah. Wow. He's in prison. But he was on death row, I thought. Huh? Oh, he's still alive. Oh, okay. And a photograph was received by the Doe Network, which is for missing children, uh, missing and exploited children. And they received a photo of Sharon and um, asking like for their help to help solve the case. I think someone had just like sent the photo along. The only person who really knew her identity was Franklin Floyd. And he was still alive. So they went to interview him. Once Floyd was in the room, he started talking and he wouldn't stop. He thought that he could try to convince the interviewer of his innocence. And if he could help them he could help him more than lawyers could. So he started, Franklin kind of started talking about his background and his history. He was born in 1943. His father died and his mother couldn't take care of him. So she sent him to Georgia's Southern Baptist home. And he said it was horrible there. They would beat him. They would beat his feet until he couldn't walk. Um, Boys would rape him and beat him. By the time he was 18, he did have mental issues. You can kind of see like, He's a victim of his own upbringing, like you and I mean. Sure. He joined the army, but he stole everywhere he went, so he was released. He was arrested, but released a ton of times. But he, the main thing is, like, he kept denying any crime he was convicted of. He denied of kidnapping Michael. He denied killing Cheryl. He wouldn't take ownership of anything. And he wouldn't touch anything to do with Sharon or Michael. When they asked where he got Sharon from, because they knew he wasn't the father of Sharon, yeah, he just said she was always with me. He denied killing Sharon, he denied killing Michael, and he denied killing Cheryl. So they didn't really learn anything from Floyd other than he was clearly psychotic. Mm. But then in 2004, the guy who interviewed him, his name was Matt Burtbeck, and he was the person who had interviewed Floyd, and he actually wrote about it in a book and about the crime and about Sharon. And it captured the attention of web sleuths. Do you remember back in the day? Like yeah, kind of. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a huge... Tri- it was like where true crime web people kind of started. Began, yeah. And threads started where people were trying to solve this crime and who Cheryl was, right? Or who Sharon was. Matt was getting so many emails about who, sh- who 
possibly Sharon could be. They'd get a couple of really good leads out of it, but no way to really test them. But then in 2005, they got a break. Dun, dun, dun. They got an anonymous email that said, would the DNA of Sharon's birth daughter help? Say what now? And then on screen comes Megan, Sharon's birth daughter. <gasps> she said she always knew that she was adopted and she never really felt weird about it until she read Matt's book. And that's when she learned about her mother's upbringing and the more angry and sad she would get about it. She had no idea the pain her mother would go through. So in 2010, in 2011, she decided to get her DNA tested to see if she could find other family members. Having the DNA and knowing that it was a positive match, the National Center for the Missing and Exploited Children came into the picture. So if you remember, Sharon had adopted children out Mm -hmm. whenever she would get pregnant. So then they went for another interview with to, with Franklin Floyd. But like in my head is like, I just, why do you keep interviewing him? Like right. I, what is he going to tell, tell you? He's not telling you the truth. But this time the FBI went and talked with him. And he was really not giving anything. But then, like they just kept questioning him. And I think they were more like, like the mind hunters, like on Netflix, mind hunters, like the FBI, criminal BAU. psychologists, like the people who could really get to them. Mm-hmm. And Lloyd starts crying. And they just kept streaming it. I'm like, how did you kill Michael? Tell us how you killed Michael Floyd. And finally, he said, I shot him twice in the head to get it over with real quick. He said he buried him near the Oklahoma-Texas border. Um, but when they went searching in the places that he had sent them, they couldn't find anything. Yeah, I'm not like, surprised. Nobody like, was if there. If they just questioned him for hours on end, right. he probably just gave up. And we still didn't know who Sharon Marshall was. And Floyd, but Floyd loved talking about himself. So they kept him talking and asking more and more questions till eventually he was talking about how at one point in his life, he was a bus driver and he met a girl named Sandy who had just lost her three kids to the state. One of the FBI agents asked him like, what was the name at the time? What was your name at the time? And he said he was going by Brendan Cleo Williams. That was the name he was like going at after at the time and that was a new identity that was not one that he had fed up like fessed up to before so that gave them something and he gives up the person that he had met sandy he talks about how they got married she got her kids back and he was helping to raise her three daughters and he could give dates for all of this when they got married all the dates of like when they got their daughters back when and so they were like, okay, what are the names of the daughters? Like, you can give us more information. And he goes, well, one of them is the one that you're here about. She was born in Livonia, Michigan. She, that's who Sharon Marshall is. I have the birth certificate, but her name was Suzanne Sevakis. So they find the birth certificate for Suzanne Sevakis, see the parents' names on it. They're both still alive. Really? Floyd had kidnapped her from the family. This is wild. wow. So the mother shows up like on the screen in the documentary. Yeah. She goes, the FBI showed up my door, showed her a picture of Sharon. And she said, that's my daughter, Susie. Do you know where she is? Oh, and then they have to tell her that she's dead. How sad. And then they show the dad, Cliff. They were talking about how um, Cliff and the... 
what is the woman? Oh, Sandy at the time. How they were an item in high school. They got married at the end of high school. She got pregnant a few months after they got married. They were super excited. They were very happy and they couldn't wait for the baby. But then Cliff got sent to Vietnam when she was born. So he didn't see her until she was six months old. He said when he when he was back, he was different, right? And at the time, Sandy, by the time he got back, Sandy was seeing a different guy and she wanted a divorce. Mm. She got pregnant with the other guy and then got divorced again. She was living in a mobile home park and a tornado came through and ripped her trailer apart. After this, she had PTSD, so she went to social services to get help. But she claims instead of helping her, they took her children away. I would claim that's a form of help and Ugh. she got better. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Department of Social Services called Cliff and asked him if he would adopt all the girls because they said he couldn't just take one. It's either take all of them or all three were going to be given up at, to a family that would take all, all of them. All three, yeah. Um, and they, he said he couldn't take all three, so all three were sent into foster care. Sandy said she was in church crying one day when Floyd walked in and he asked her what was wrong. She told him like the whole story and he said God had sent him here to help her. They would get married, they'd get her children back, and they would be fine. So that's what they did. Really? And she said like he got scary pretty quickly after they got married and kind of turned abusive pretty quickly. But uh, so at one point she had to go buy diapers for the girls and she was at 7-Eleven and wrote a bad check for it because he like wouldn't. They had no money. He wouldn't give her money. So she had to spend 30 days in jail. And while she was in jail, that's when Floyd took the girls. So writing a bad check got you 30 days in jail back then? I guess so. I don't know if there was other things. Like you and I mean, but. Seems a bit excessive. Sandy went to the police immediately and reported them as kidnapping. But the police asked if she was married to him. When she said yes, they said, well, this is a civil thing and you'll have to figure it out yourself. Which is like wild to me because. Well, back then, yeah. Lost I know, image. but I feel like you don't contact the fathers either. Like, it just seems, oh, I don't know. I guess if you give up your rights, I don't know. So at one point, he dropped Allison and Amy, which were Sharon's sisters, off to an orphanage, but kept Susie and left. Thus begins Susie, Sharon, Tanya's wild, abusive, psychotic Ugh. life. But like, I just find it crazy. Like, that's it? Like, the dad didn't know. Like, her mom didn't look any further into it. Like, she, you know what I mean? Like, they yeah. just, that was they it. Just they just let kind of let it go. Were like, she's gone. She's gone. So, at least now they have an identity. And in 2017, they replaced Tanya's headstone with a headstone reflecting her correct identity. But we still don't know where Michael's body is. And, like, I wish he could have been buried with her. Like, right. we still don't know how Sharon died. We still don't know anything else other than her identity. And that's it. That's, and that's how, how it, it ends. ends. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. I would want to know more, but. I need to know more. And it kind of ends like on a on a high note or not on a high note, but like Sharon's daughter steps forward a lot. Like I think now this is like she's the one who like picks the name for the gravestones. She's the one like now she's in close contact with Cliff and with like Suzanne, her share like grandparents? her par- grandparents. Yeah. yeah. So she's like and Cliff said like I never got to really know um Susie growing up, but at least now I have the, like I have her. So because at the time also 
Cliff was like going through PTSD from Vietnam. He said, he's like, I wasn't in shape to take care of three girls. That's why I didn't. Like he was on drugs. He was an alcoholic. He was living with his parents. Like there was just no way. And since then you can tell he's definitely like cleaned up. Like he's, he's sitting in an affluent room. He's very well dressed. He's well spoken. Like I, so that also freaks me out though, that like you didn't, care where your daughter was like it's just weird to me that like they just stopped stopped looking looking. yeah so this whole thing was just bizarre what a crazy ride right and they don't mention her two daughters did they get custody back he dropped off an orphanage what happened to them they go yeah and where's michael i so many unanswered questions so many unanswered questions wow it's good you should watch it it's really good i will so girl in the photograph or in the picture. What is it? Yeah, girl in the picture. Girl in the picture. Netflix just came out. Y'all got to watch it. Let us know what you all think. Let us know if it was a crazy ride for you as much as it was for us. Join us in the Facebook Facebook discussion group. It just makes sense. Facebook discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at just makes sense podcast. You can follow me at Sam set Samantha Smith says yeah. Sam Smith says Sam Smith says. <laughs> You can follow Jeff at <laughs> Jeff Seif on Twitter, 1F and Jeff. Don't forget to like, subscribe, listen to our ads. Rate us. Rate us. Let us know. Thanks. Bye. Bye.